Hello and welcome to Beyond Japan, an interdisciplinary podcast that looks at the broad reach of Japanese studies from within and beyond Japan. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for Japanese Studies at the Sainsbury Institute for the Study of Japanese Arts and Cultures, in collaboration with the University of East Anglia. I'm your host, Oliver Moxon, Project Support Officer at the Center for Japanese Studies and Researcher of Japanese War Heritage. This week we are joined by Dr. Giulio Pugliese, Departmental Lecturer in Japanese Politics and International Relations at the University of Oxford, who has written extensively in politics and international relations in the Asia-Pacific, with a focus on Japan, China and the United States. Today we will be discussing the legacy of Shinzo Abe on Sino-Japanese relations following his resignation as Prime Minister on the 16th of September, and how his departure will impact the future relationship between Japan and China. We hope you enjoy the show. Good morning, Julio. Thank you for joining me today. Good morning. Thanks for having me. I was wondering if you could start off by giving us a quick self-introduction, so explaining what your field is and what your research has been so far. Sure. So <clears throat> I am uh, a uh, area study specialist by training, a Japan specialist. I've been uh, living there. I live there on and off. Uh, five years altogether, and I am uh, very much interested in contemporary politics, um, both domestic but mostly international, really. And I'm very interested in understanding the great power politics uh, uh, between Japan and China, but also uh, uh, by taking into account the role of the United States of America. And so you could say that I've been quietly expanding my research interests to include um, a study of uh, Chinese and American foreign policy as well in recent years. Um, and that's it. And I'm based uh, now based at the Nissan Institute uh, uh, for Japanese Studies uh, in um, Oxford University. And uh, I think that's enough bragging. <laughs> Great. Sounds fascinating. So we're here today to talk about uh, sign japanese relations following the resignation of Shinzo Abe, the uh, longest ruling prime minister in Japan at almost eight years in total. He has been described by political commentators as a right-wing nationalist holding a revisionist view of Japan's Asia-Pacific war record, which includes denying the comfort war issue and something which has soured relations with South Korea. Has his premiership affected Japanese relations with China in a similar manner? I'd say that by... Uh, the sheer fact that uh, we're talking about Abe Shinzo, the grand prince of Japanese nationalists, you could say, he has attracted a, lot, a great deal of attention in both China and South Korea, especially as relationships uh, with these countries soured. And so political machinations uh, and partisan politics, uh, uh, I'm talking about South Korea, democratic country in this case, uh, prevented uh, um, the leadership of Park Yun-hye back then to, to get too cozy with Abe. And the same applies to China. When <clears throat> Abe came back to power, rose back to power in, 20, uh, in December 2012, um, Japan, China rela- Japan and China were embroiled in uh, uh, the most important bilateral crisis uh, since uh, the uh, normalization of diplomatic relations. And that was uh, the crisis over the Sikapi-Gyu Islands. And so, 
it made perfect sense for the Chinese propaganda apparatus to also insist upon uh, Abe's uh, nationalism. Because Abe is uh, an almost operatic character, and in terms of his own personal views, uh, they're frankly grotesque. Um, they date back from his maternal grandfather, who used to be imprisoned after the Second World War to be indicted as a Class A war criminal, responsible for crimes against peace. He was sitting in the war cabinet that waged war against the United States of America as Minister of Munitions. And before that, he was a brilliant bureaucrat who was responsible for uh, forced labor policies in occupied Manchukuo, in occupied Manchuria. And, and Abe essentially inherited from his maternal grandfather this uh, this vision that Japan was uh, an unrecognized, uh, uh, imperial Japan was an unrecognized benefactor of Asian nations. Uh, it liberated them from uh, the yoke of Western colonialism, I'm thinking more of Southeast Asia here, for instance. Uh, but more importantly, it actually uh, sowed the seeds uh, for uh, uh, change in terms of uh, industrialization uh, and a modern uh, uh, set of institutions that eventually, uh, as the uh, thinking goes, uh, uh, made possible for, you know, Japan's neighbors, especially South Korea, Taiwan, um, Hong Kong and Singapore, um, to uh, catch up and to modernize their own economies by climbing uh, up uh, the added value um, ladder. And uh, people like Abe think that these countries have been uh, in debt, especially South Korea, uh, the Korean Peninsula, and Taiwan. And that debt is unrecognized. And so Abe eventually uh, has this grudge that there is a constant uh, quest for what he understands as apology diplomacy to keep down uh, uh, Japanese pride and Japanese uh, <clears throat> pride in their own nation and the good things that the Japanese empire also did. This is uh, Abe's personal beliefs, but in terms of actual, uh, of actual uh, um, behavior, once he became prime minister, uh, we should remind ourselves that Abe surrounded himself uh, uh, with foreign policy advisors that were sane, that were rational, pragmatic, uh, and they basically uh, advised against uh, inflammatory behavior such as uh, repeated visits to the Yaskuni Shrine, only one happened in 2013, and they also advised against uh, um, nationalist remarks uh, um, of an inflammatory type. And so what happened is that yes, the sheer fact that Abe was in power was also a big stumbling block uh, for smoother relations between South Korea and China, but there were contextual um, political factors in these countries, uh, in China's case, mostly geopolitical, in Korea's case, essentially uh, domestic political, because the Japan issue with anti-Japan nationalism is a structural issue. It defines Korean identity, you might say. And these political issues prevented these countries from getting together with what they correctly understood as grotesque uh, uh, nationalist uh, prime minister. But this is the person, this is Abe the person, Abe as a prime minister behaved in a different way. And so uh, Abe opened up to uh, another comfort women deal in 2015 with South Korea. And Abe also made uh, 
a statement remembering the 70th anniversary of uh, the end of the Second World War, but did not provoke uh, uh, both South Korea and China. We're talking about ambiguous statements. Um, Abe would still not uh, walk the uh, last mile to, to really showcase uh, contrition for uh, Imperial Japan uh, uh, that, that prevented him from being too, uh, too inflammatory. And this, I think, is important to remember. And uh, this is the answer to your question, I guess. So to focus on Chinese-Japanese relations, what have been the major sticking points of Abe's premiership? You've written on the role of disputed territory, such as the Senkaku Islands, and an information war where tit-for-tat propaganda is put out in order to betray one as a benevolent power and the other as a hostile aggressor. Could you expand on, on this for us? Sure. So I think that the major sticking point uh, uh, of Abe's premiership has certainly been uh, the... Uh, all-time low uh, in uh, South Korea-Japan relations since, uh, again, the normalization of diplomatic relations, because there has been a race to the bottom, whereas uh, the uh, administration that followed Park Yun-hae essentially ignored uh, the comfort women deal that was signed up by Abe and his equivalent uh, Park Yun-hae back in 2015. And we've had a small escalation whereas the Korean Supreme Court uh, allowed for forced uh, uh, take of uh, Japanese properties, of Japanese big, bis big business conglomerates properties and assets uh, in South Korea because they did not repay and they were unwilling to repay forced labor during, uh, during the time of Imperial Japan, especially during the war efforts. The Supreme Court's decision was essentially, in the eyes of the Japanese government, uh, going against uh, the letter of uh, the Normalization Treaty that essentially settled the, uh, the war reparations issue. And so the Japanese government feared that uh, uh, the Korean government was opening up a Pandora's box, not just in, uh, in terms of uh, possible uh, uh, compensation claims in South Korea, but also in the rest of Asia. And so it overreacted. And this, I think, comes from Abe Shinzo uh, and the Prime Minister's office, that it overreacted in terms of enforcing export controls uh, on um, important uh, chemical uh, products and, and components that should have been exported to South Korean uh, powerhouses, business powerhouses, so producing uh, electronic goods and whatnot. And this essentially further worsened uh, bilateral relations. And so I think that Japan-South Korea relations, uh, notwithstanding the full potential of the two important liberal democracies in the region that actually should have more or less uh, common strategic interests, uh, have these huge burdens of history and uh, this huge identity, if you want, uh, wall uh, preventing them from building up uh, a future-oriented relationship. And it takes two to tango, so as it's clear, I'm also blaming Japan. But uh, I would say that uh, in, with regard to Japan-China relations, so yes, there has been a worsening of, of relations because China is the most important strategic challenge for Japan. Um, and it has also taken uh, the shape of propaganda on both sides, whereas uh, as uh, uh, the Senkaku-Diaoyu island dispute uh, uh, essentially saw uh, Japan uh, acting as a revisionist state, according to the Chinese, because it nationalized three of the islands, although Japan had uh, possession of these islands uh, essentially since uh, 
1895. And China's shipping and China's uh, willingness to push uh, the envelope by sending official vessels and, uh, and aircraft and whatnot, and paramilitary uh, vessels also, to the um, uh, disputed uh, waters and islands, uh, that uh, reinforced uh, a sense of uh, a grievance on the Japanese side. And so there has been this uh, spiraling uh, propaganda uh, dilemma, you might say, whereas both countries uh, insisted upon uh, self-righteous portrayals of um, their own morally just uh, claims over the islands and over the maritime claims uh, of the waters surrounding the islands and depicted the counterpart as a, um, a revisionist power bent on subverting the international order. And this is very dangerous. Uh, this is uh, something that you clearly see right now playing up between the US and China. The US uh, government has doubled down on the demonization of China much more than Japan back, uh, back during the high times of the Senkaku Yeru crisis. And I think that we are living in a world where we have to be more and more careful about government-led uh, propaganda, not just from Russia, China, and what people like to call sharp power and disinformation and fake news, but also from our own politicians, from our own governments and from our own allies, because it's a much more conflict-prone uh, period that we're living in, where interests more readily clash. And so governments are more and more interested in uh, pushing uh, their own messages with domestic and foreign audiences in mind. So there is always a domestic audience in the back of policymakers' mind to sort of like amplify the self-righteousness of these messages. When you say conflict-prone, how bad do you imagine these conflicts getting? Do you, do you really believe this uh, bluster and propaganda could actually lead to some sort of proxy conflict somewhere or a direct conflict somewhere? I think it's the opposite. It's, um, it's the fact that uh, interests conflict and uh, uh, the instability of the international system allows uh, for um, a more aggressive and risk-prone uh, uh, behavior. That very behavior by different states, uh, the fact that the dust hasn't settled on, the, on many of uh, Japan's and especially China's, of course, territorial and maritime disputes, and the fact that this uh, kindles not just uh, potential uh, aggressiveness uh, from the Chinese side, but also a defensiveness uh, on other countries, uh, a defensiveness that might actually lead to mistakes. And I'm thinking of uh, Japan's nationalization of the islands in 2012. What that was diplomatically a, a blunder, in my opinion, because it essentially allowed China to respond aggressively to that, uh, to the change of the status quo. And so you see that also the defensiveness on, on other countries' side may well lead to, to a conflict-prone situation. And once these conflicts get into, you know, not necessarily full spirals, but gain uh, traction, uh, then it's at that very point that uh, there is an insistence more and more on propaganda, on denouncing the counterpart as evil, as an existential threat, uh, um, and this, in turn, reinforces mistrust. These signals reinforce mistrust and reinforce uh, uh, a spiral, not just uh, in terms of a security dilemma spiral, where rearmament on both sides is seen as aggressive, and hence this is a self-fulfilling prophecy where both countries in a security dilemma 
uh, imperil actual their own security by doubling down on military spending and uh, and whatnot. The same can be said about propaganda by doubling down on uh, uh, aggrieved messages of my country right or wrong and and, and the counterpart is essentially pure evil. Uh, this may spiral out of control and and actually widens the rifts. We're seeing this not just in the geopolitical realm, but we are seeing it uh, in the Brexit negotiations uh, or the failed Brexit negotiations. We're seeing a lot of uh, nationalistic pandering um, that, uh, that is really, it, it, it is worrisome. Um, and and uh, I hope that uh, the better angels uh, of our minds and our souls will prevail. But uh, that's... Uh, that's uh, my cynical situation, my cynical, uh, my cynical, my cynical take as of now, my real estate, you might say. To bring it back to the Asian Pacific theatre, as we pass the 75th anniversary of VJ Day, we're entering a world without living memory of the Asia Pacific War. In spite of the chronological distance, the war remains a flashpoint for relations between Japan and its neighboring nations. So do you predict any softening in this damaging discourse as the atrocities of Imperial Japan move further into the past? So the standard uh, take, the sort of orthodox, um, old-fashioned take on, uh, on the historical issues was that as the old generation in Asia dies out, younger generations would essentially forget the uh, brutal legacy of the Japanese Empire. But this clearly has not been the case. The uh, nationalism and the remembrance of Japanese colonialism or Japanese wars of aggression and resistance to the Japanese have been enshrined in national education programs. Uh, in fact, uh, you might say that uh, they're not as relevant um, as other media, uh, such as entertainment, movies, for instance. And if you look at the movies that have been produced in the past 10, 15 years, in China, South Korea, even Taiwan, you might say, you'll see a spike in the number of uh, movies that distinctively have a, uh, an anti-Japanese uh, flair to it, the historical movies. And this is interesting because it keeps up the flame uh, of mistrust towards Japan, especially in South Korea and China. And I would say that um, it is a bit, it's a, bit it's a very tricky situation. As mentioned, in South Korea, anti-Japan nationalism is, a, is essentially defining it defines south korean identity it's one of the few issues that somehow gets the very split and partisan korean society together the conservatives and the progressives it didn't used to be this way and so it's going to be very very tricky japan has apologized this is often misunderstood. The Japanese government has apologized uh, repeated times since the 1990s, especially, uh, officially. But nationalists like Abe, who want to build uh, a big Japan and whatnot, uh, make Japan a proud great power, are particularly uh, aggrieved at the fact that Japan has to always atone for its past misdeeds and it, cannot, it can't move forward. And for some good reasons, too, because Japan, since the end of the Second World War, is not a militarist country that is back uh, to uh, ban its influence in the Asia-Pacific. Um, no matter the grotesque uh, discourses that you sometimes hear in the news outlets uh, uh, of some of Japan's neighbors. And, and people like Abe think that the Gangenheitsbewältigung, uh, as the Germans call it, is kind of like uh, introspective uh, 
almost um, pain, that uh, and taboo that the Japanese uh, uh, citizens feel and still do feel a lot towards military means and towards uh, uh, military as a tool of statecraft. Uh, that essentially keeps uh, uh, Japan down uh, from playing a more assertive role in international politics. Uh, Abe has called this essentially a masochistic education and has made sure that a patriotic education would move Japan forward uh, as a normal country, essentially. And I understand uh, where Abe comes from. I think that um, uh, we are still seeing uh, a very minimalistic Japan. Certainly, uh, it's no big military spender in relative to GDP or in absolute terms compared to China. But relative to GDP is also another as much as uh, as much a military, a military big spender as, as South Korea, where there is military conscription, for instance, not least because there is uh, only just a truce between the North and the South. Japan is still a very anti-militarist country. We shouldn't forget this. And and people have been suspicious of Abe's security reforms. That's not the reason why he has been the longest lang uh, the, the longest uh, serving Japanese prime minister ever. He was basically able to buy off. Uh, the electorate while the opposition was in shambles. But again, people are not enamored with, um, with Abe's security reforms and with Abe's uh, security profile to the extent that to date the constitution hasn't been uh, amended. And so I would say that uh, it takes two to tango. I, I, I think that Japan, the Japanese government should be more forthcoming with regard to apologies and recognizing uh, its brutal legacy. It would only do good. But I also understand that there will be a backlash within Japan's nationalist forces when this happens, and this eventually is uh, going to divide the nation and whatnot. But I'm not sure that, that apologies uh, are also going to be uh, remembered uh, and properly understood uh, among Japan's neighbors uh, as of now. We shouldn't forget that, again, Japan's track record has been fairly fairly positive in terms of being a faithful upholder of international society. And since World War II, then Japan's military has been super defensive. It hasn't sent troops abroad to, to fight against uh, an enemy. Uh, it has sent uh, engineers, it has sent uh, uh, military, uh, uh, it's all military for peacekeeping operations. But it's been very different, for instance, even from the track record of South Korea that has sent 100,000 soldiers in Vietnam, for instance. Um, and so we should be very careful when we think about, you know, uh, Japanese militarism and whatnot. It's very political. It's very, you might say, uh, it hits a raw nerve in terms of uh, the national identity of these very proud countries that even Hobsbawm uh, described as proto-nations, uh, China, Korea, the, the peninsula, and, uh, and Japan. Even before the advent of modernity, they had uh, a distinctive uh, self-representation as uh, a unique uh, nation with uh, a specific language. And this feeds into this tricky process of reconciliation, I think, precisely the fact that uh, they are very proud. Abe has been known for maintaining a close relationship with the United States, getting close to Trump as he alienated other world leaders. Some experts are suggesting that Trump won't be re-elected this November. So I was wondering, how do you view Sino-Japanese relations moving forward in the context of likely changes to the Sino-American relationship? 
and also how will this impact regional de developments where Sino-Japanese interests converge and compete? I don't think that uh, U.S. foreign policy towards China would drastically change under a Biden presidency. An anonymous Japanese government official uh, published uh, a commentary on the American interest um, early in 2020 by uh, stating unmistakably that uh, the Japanese government prefers Trump to Obama. And Biden was Obama's vice president. Because Trump, <clears throat> yes, he's unpredictable. He is... Uh, in many ways, unhinged. That's not his words, by the way. These are my words. But he has, he has essentially reshuffled American foreign policy priorities uh, by prioritizing China. China is essentially the key revisionist power and existential threat that needs to be addressed. This has been happening under the Donald Trump administration, as evident by the national security strategy of 2017 and the national defense strategy of 2018. And this has also been uh, uh, accompanied by uh, what uh, some people in Trump quarters call peace for strength. The military budget has increased uh, to levels uh, comparable to the Iraqi war. And this has essentially also uh, meant a repositioning of American uh, uh, forces in the, uh, the Asia-Pacific. And Abe likes that because <clears throat> the Abe government um, has essentially developed uh, Tokyo's uh, China policy, uh, which is essentially synonymous with uh, Tokyo's uh, foreign policy because, again, China is the most important and pressing security challenge for Japan in terms of uh, negotiation, negotiating from a position of strength. And the key vector that has allowed Japan to negotiate from a position of strength with Beijing has been the U.S.-Japan alliance, a strengthened U.S.-Japan alliance that had uh, more and more guarantees uh, of coming to the rescue of its ally in case of a contingency around the Senkakus, in case of a cyber attack and whatnot. Uh, this reassured Japan and conversely enhanced, uh, in the eyes of the Japanese, also through major presence operations and showing uh, uh, military signaling and military exercises, this essentially has allowed uh, the alliance to showcase uh, deterrence towards the Chinese. And the Chinese government um, has, in fact, uh, softened its own position vis-a-vis uh, -vis uh, Japan precisely at the time when the uh, U.S. government uh, pursued a more maximalist pushback against China. And so to open up spaces for its own uh, you know, strategic lat latitude, uh, China made tactical overtures uh, to India, to Japan, and, and this in a sense, um, gives you, this gives you a sense of how, how entangled are Japan-US relations with uh, Japan-China relations. I don't think that Biden will, however, change things drastically. What will happen, in my opinion, is that there will be a reset with China in terms of uh, tariffs. Maybe Biden will do without tariffs, even if he's from the democratic countries. Party. I'm not sure that tariffs play well into American prosperity, especially following a disastrous pandemic that has ravaged the American economy. There might, there might be a reset on that front, and there might be less, a more inward-looking administration, for obvious reason, uh, that is uh, dealing with the aftermath of the pandemic. Uh, an inward-looking administration that is more uh, prone into healing its own wounds uh, and spending... Um, its own resources uh, for um, 
healthcare reform that is uh, um, perhaps less ambitious than Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, but that my, may be in the cards. And other welfare measures that uh, uh, America will badly need. This will mean necessarily uh, less military spending uh, and perhaps uh, needing to find a more cooperative posture with uh, uh, some of the international players. And China is one of them. And so to the extent that, yes, there is uh, a bipartisan consensus, consensus against uh, China's um, economic malpractice, uh, uh, assertiveness, aggressiveness, whatever you want to call it, uh, its political involution and its almost neo-Stalinist uh, um, political system, I, I see a Biden presidency as being certainly much more, restra more restrained than, uh, than Trump's, but not changing the equation drastically. Uh, for one thing, human rights will be <clears throat> top of the agenda, and this is very different from, uh, from a Trump presidency. And, and the China issue has been politicized uh, big time in the US, and so Congress uh, will uh, certainly uh, corner uh, even, you know, a panda hugging uh, Biden if that were going to be the case. Um, and I think this will be also to the advantage of Japan. Japan has invested in a rethink of American foreign policy in, uh, in terms of pushing for a more sort of clear-eyed and uh, uh, deterrence-prone uh, China policy. And so I think that uh, I think that um, there won't be major changes. And not least because uh, Suga is going to essentially push for the same foreign policy line that Abe has pushed for before. Okay. I'd like to focus a bit more on Suga. Um, as we, it's now guaranteed that he will be succeeding Abe as the interim prime minister until the election uh, in 2021. Um, what do we know about him as a politician? And do you predict any changes in his rhetoric, if not policy? Abe uh, was uh, enormously frustrated when he had to resign in 2007, nominally because of uh, ulcerative colitis again. And he was enormously frustrated because um, his successor, designated by the LDP uh, hastily, was uh, Fukuda Yasuo, who basically scrapped uh, all of Abe's uh, uh, reforms in foreign and security policy which are Abe's pet projects. And so what happened this time is that Abe has learned from the past, as he did before, during the course of the term. You know, he lasted uh, seven years this time rather than just one year. Abe learned from the past and, uh, and he, essentially, uh, he, he essentially skillfully uh, arranged uh, for factions to fall in place to allow for uh, a successor that will... Uh, uphold his own uh, foreign policy and policy castle. Uh, and that's uh, his uh, former chief cabinet secretary, uh, Suga Yoshihide. I think that um, for this very reason, uh, Suga is an atypical politician. He's not a hereditary politician. He comes from a, uh, a humble uh, socioeconomic background and he has uh, essentially strove uh, to um, and worked hard to pursue a political career, uh, interestingly enough, uh, without factional support, which is interesting, and without the connections and the uh, legacy that comes uh, in uh, a good portion of uh, uh, former Japanese prime ministers. 
so we're talking really of an exceptional case uh, in recent year um, in terms of his own personal background. But Suda is, in many ways, uh, uh, a domestic politics focused uh, politician. Um, he's particularly good at, make, at, at tapping uh, uh, bureaucrats um, for his own uh, policies. And he has been a smooth operator in terms of managing uh, domestic politics for the sake of strengthening uh, uh, the LDP grip on power, uh, both in terms of managing uh, the relationship with the media, the news media, but also in terms of uh, strategically devising uh, key dates where uh, strategically devising uh, uh, diet this lower house dissolutions that would have allowed the LDP to, in, to declare general elections and then further strengthen their rule. I think this is uh, uh, what might happen before Suga's term as uh, uh, LDP president expires in September 2021, uh, before the term uh, of the lower house, before the full legislature ends uh, in October 2021. I think that we will get uh, lower house elections sooner rather than later because the economic situation is not the economic prospects are not fantastic and we're going to get hit by a second wave of sorts uh, perhaps much more manageable than the first because we know more or less what we're talking about when, when it comes to coronavirus and how to treat it and uh, uh, and whatnot but um, but it will be tough it will be tough for the economy for one um, and so it would make much more sense uh, for uh, uh, Suga to steal the funder and dissolve the lower house uh, now that uh, popularity rates are up. And with regards to policies, as things stand now, I would imagine that everything will keep more or less the same. Abenomics will continue. Uh, the free and open in the Pacific uh, grand vision will certainly continue. It has recently been exported to Germany, meaning that Germany has enshrine the free and open Indo-Pacific as uh, a key pillar of its own foreign policy. And we shouldn't forget that the free and open Indo-Pacific is a Japanese initiative, originally, espoused from the US, but eventually snowballing into all sorts of um, uh, countries adopting it. And uh, even if it has different meanings, depending on the country and whatnot. But it was Suga's executive secretary, when he was chief cabinet secretary, Suga's executive secretary back then, Ichikawa-san, was uh, the creator of the free and open in the Pacific uh, uh, strategy, uh, vision. And I imagine that precisely because of that uh, link, uh, he will probably tap on Ichikawa to, uh, to expound on this, on this concept. And, and I, I imagine that, um, yeah, we would see a lot of continuity. One small... This continuity that I might see is uh, that Suga may need to open up the country for, to foreign tourists, especially because of the Olympic Games. And Suga has been, uh, one of his policy successes has been uh, the booming uh, of inbound foreign tourism into Japan. And I suspect that uh, Suga may relax uh, the sort of like pandemic sakoku uh, for all the Japan experts that are listening, uh, uh, basically so the, the, the Abe government during the pandemic has closed off the country, not unlike uh, the Edo period when Japan uh, more or less closed off uh, uh, itself, when the Tokugawa closed off the country from, from foreigners from accessing it. And so we would probably see a steadily a resumption of, um, yeah, allowing at the, at the very least uh, 
visa holders to enter the country. It's now not allowed for visa holders, even uh, working visa holders, to enter the, uh, to enter Japan, which is uh, it's a bizarre situation. But I imagine that given Suga's sympathies and the looming, uh, I'm not sure whether it's the right word, <laughs> Olympic Games, uh, they might need uh, to be yeah a uh, an intake of, of of foreign tourists and foreign workers and foreigners more generally. I think we're all. Hoping for a change in tact in regards to that some, uh, sometime soon. It's been reported by the BBC that Suga is a stand-in interim prime minister expected to keep Abe's course, as you've mentioned, and that a more energetic candidate will be proposed by the LDP for the next election. Uh, what rhetoric do you, uh, you expect from an energetic LDP candidate towards China? Well, uh, I don't know. I, I think that... Um... An energetic LDP candidate has to strike uh, a balance between uh, drawing the red lines in terms of uh, defining uh, and, 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 and signaling the um, willingness to protect Japanese interests. Uh, to, and this would be communicated and signaled not just to the Chinese audiences, but also to Japanese audiences and foreign audiences, because, of course, you have to communicate resolve also to your counterparts, not least the, um, uh, the United States of America. But at the same time, it has to strike a balance between that message of resolve uh, and, uh, and the, uh, the need to, to assuage Chinese counterparts to save their face. Uh, because ultimately, diplomacy has to prevail. Um, diplomatic property is in bad need nowadays. Now that we are, unfortunately, we are more and more uh, surrounded by nationalistic discourses that yeah, but are making us all much more stupid and taking us into a bad place. And so uh, diplomatic property and diplomacy, <clears throat> even in, time, in times of crisis, um, uh, is a resource that should be more and more often uh, go back into fashion. It should go back into fashion. It should be more often uh, taken into consideration. I think that uh, Konotaro would be an excellent uh, uh, prime minister in terms of foreign and security policy. His English is excellent. His uh, upbringing uh, is very international. And he uh, has served both as a foreign minister and defense minister already. And he would be an excellent uh, uh, spokesperson uh, for, uh, for Japan. I think that Suga would simply delegate uh, foreign and security policy to bureaucratic uh, caters, to bureaucratic uh, brains, and uh, to the current minister of foreign affairs. Uh, who has been uh, uh, there, who has been Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Motegi, uh, already under uh, the previous uh, Abe uh, cabinet. And so I see continuity, essentially. Um, yeah, that's my answer. But on the, uh, the fact that Suga would be a caretaker that would be replaced, I don't think that that's necessarily the case. Suga will take a taste of power, Suga is taking a taste of power and he might well dissolve the diet uh, before the opposition parties uh, coalesce into a big one and before the economic and uh, COVID situation worsens. So I've, I, my bets are still on um, early lower house uh, uh, dissolvement and uh, general elections uh, by the end of this year. And this so, means that if he wins them, then he will... Uh, uh, cement his position within the party vis-a-vis -vis the factions 
um, and stay in power for at least four years or so, I would imagine. So lots to watch for then in the coming years then. Finally, I'd like to just discuss, uh, as you have already mentioned, Brexit. In light of the UK-Japan trade deal, does the UK have any role, however small, in Sino-Japanese relations, given the UK's erratic approach to China? Right. So you know, Japan was very frustrated. We uh, barely hear this in the public commentaries and news media. We like to think that Japan was following the um, United States when, uh, when, they, uh, when both countries decided not to, uh, to join China's Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank in 2015. And they never did. Uh, the US and Japan are still not members of the AIIB. And Japan was very frustrated when, uh, when the UK, uh, Cameron and Osborne, decided to sprint off and, uh, and announce their decision to join the AIIB. And it was frustrated out of its own grievances vis-a-vis uh, -vis China. It wasn't forced and pressured by the US. It was, the, it was Japan that essentially was very displeased at uh, China's uh, new multilateral uh, development bank. And uh, with that, China's growing influence. And the UK-China relations uh, back then was basically uh, enthralled uh, by the so-called golden era. But it basically has gone flat. Under May, we've seen already a kind of recalibration of uh, UK's China policy. But now we've seen it more and more with uh, Johnson, not least because of American pressure and because, of course, of, of, of backlash uh, on uh, the Hong Kong security, national security laws and China's amateurish and uh, self-centered, I would say, because it's, it's really, it's just basically essentially domestically driven uh, wolf warrior diplomacy. China's undiplomatic diplomacy hasn't won friends at all among foreign public opinion, especially during the pandemic. And of course, the pandemic, which originated in China, has just worsened and worsened. This perception of China's intentions and China's, uh, the nature of a Chinese government. And so what we have seen is that there has been uh, uh, some convergence with Japanese interests in terms of being more suspicious of China, but also in uh, willing to showcase uh, a military presence in the Indo-Pacific, joint military exercises, uh, the promise that um, a, uh, air a UK aircraft carrier would sail uh, the South China Sea in the near future. These are all uh, posturing, uh, posturings by the UK uh, to prove not just to Japan, but also to the United States of America, which has a very harsh now and critical view of China and has launched and uh, developed a, a set of policies that aim at cornering China. Well, the UK is basically adapting uh, uh, a bit. We've seen this also with Huawei, although the UK is arguably still hedging, but anyway, I think that the stars are aligning in Japan's favor. But there's something else. I think that the UK government's uh, foreign policy priorities are clearly in the trade and economic uh, uh, realm because they are perfectly entangled with domestic political gains of taking back control, of showing to the British electorate that uh, uh, Britain will thrive uh, after leaving the uh, European Union by signing as many free trade agreements as possible with the outer world. And so, freed from the shackles and the, <clears throat> the impositions of Brussels, Britain will be free to 
to sign up to uh, trade deals and investment agreements uh, with the rest of the world. And so for that very reason, uh, the UK has lobbied hard Japan to uh, showcase results in terms of uh, bilateral negotiations for a free trade agreement. And this uh, was just announced, right? Uh, the negotiations for a free trade agreement uh, between the UK and Japan have been successful. Yep. What we would see now in all likelihood is that the UK would push hard also in joining TPP, which is possible. Uh, provided that you get lobbying uh, from within TPP by important countries such as Japan, Australia, and you know there are many Commonwealth countries. Uh, I would imagine that would also want to to see their relationship, their economic relationship with uh, with the UK expanded. But uh, there is something that I sense is playing up. What is Japan getting in return? In my opinion, and which has to do with your question on Sino-Japanese relations in China. My feeling, judging from uh, the reports about uh, Japan potentially joining uh, the Five Eyes uh, Intelligence Alliance, my feeling is that Japan has um, tried to secure and perhaps secured an additional voice in favor of, of, of the country joining the Five Eyes uh, uh, Alliance, uh, Intelligence Alliance Network, uh, and that is the UK. The US um, is very jealous of its own intelligence services, and as you might know, the Five Eyes Alliance is this uh, intelligence alliance between uh, the Anglophone uh, countries of the UK, the US, Australia, Canada, and New Zealand. And <clears throat> as um, the US, the most important countries of the country and most powerful country of the five, as the US more harshly repositions its foreign policy to prioritize uh, the China challenge, uh, it badly needs also good intelligence. And the Japanese have very good signal intelligence, but also human intelligence because of cultural proximity with China, uh, because uh, the country has actually known China quite intimately. It has actually occupied China. Um, and ethnically speaking, it's, it's easier to basically uh, develop links with China, also in terms of the, the, the sheer geographic proximity to Japan. And so... There is an alluring uh, proposition of uh, letting Japan join the Five Eyes Alliance uh, to share its own intelligence on China and North Korea. And in return, of course, Japan would get, uh, uh, would get intelligence from the other countries as well. I suspect that the UK, this is all in mysterious, uh, it's a mysterious world to me. So I'm just, uh, I'm really, I'm just <clears throat> imagining things. But I suspect that the UK, since it badly needs uh, economic deals and free trade deals and whatnot, uh, the negotiation level that the UK can play up uh, with Japan is precisely its uh, outstanding security role. Not just in terms of physical presence in the Indo-Pacific and uh, cooperation with Japan on this and that infrastructure project and connectivity project, uh, but also in terms of allowing Japan to get a share of the Five Eyes uh, intelligence pie, and in return, uh, it would get something else on, uh, on the economic front. I would say that Australia, especially with this government, is clearly interested in uh, having Japan joining, in my opinion. I don't think it's feasible. I don't think it will actually happen. But um, I think that perhaps this is one of the things and one of the chips uh, that uh, the UK might be using. And that uh, might actually hint at, uh, yeah, at a growing uh, proximity between the two countries, in a sense. Because joining the Five Eyes Intelligence Alliance, then 
doesn't necessarily mean that you will have to fight a war for that country. And so there are no fears of being entrapped into a Japanese, uh, into a Japanese war. Uh, but certainly there has to be a trust uh, issue and uh, deep down uh, a trust issue also in terms of, of, of Japan's institutions being able to more fully and confidently show that they can protect the information that they receive from others and that they actually automatically get from others. Um, but there's also deep down uh, a mistrust that uh, boils down to, you know, uh, Japan being other, Japan being ethnically uh, different. And, and so I, I suspect that this will, nothing will happen, but knowing how the UK has used its own security leverage to, to get economic concessions here and there, I, I, I would imagine that this might actually be happening, not least because we see signals that some countries are lobbying also for, uh, and, mem- and portions of countries in Australia and the UK are lobbying for Japan to join the alliance. And so I imagine that this may play well. It's very intriguing. Thank you for all your comprehensive answers, Julia. It's been a very insightful episode. I'm happy uh, that, you, that you liked it. Thank you for having me. You can find Dr. Julio Pliese's research profile in the link below. You can read more on his research on Sino-Japanese relations in his 2017 text, Sino-Japanese Power Politics, Might, Money and Minds. Join us next week when we will be in discussion with Dr. Chris Perkins on Japanese-Korean culture exchange. Thank you for listening.